0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to everyone to this evening's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Um, We are delighted that you are here. Um, We are going to focus on a wonderful book written by Tom Kaufman. Inclusion, How Hawaii Protected Its Japanese-Americans from Mass Incarceration After Pearl Harbor. I'm pleased to open this program both for the audience here at the club and for the many people watching the program online in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Mary Bitterman, a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors and president of the Bernard Osher Foundation. I am proud that this evening's program is part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Osher Foundation. And it's presented in partnership with the Club's Asia Pacific Affairs member led forum. And I can't go on without acknowledging the extraordinary contributions of Lillian Nakagawa in doing so much to make this program possible. As a long-standing supporter of the Commonwealth Club and advocate of its civic mission to convene the community on important issues uh, with diverse audiences, I'm delighted that the club has returned to begin hosting programs in person here at these beautiful headquarters on the Embarcadero and that it will be hosting many more in-person programs over the weeks and months to come. For those who are not members of the club, I encourage you to join. Now is the time, as wonderful programs and more outstanding speakers are being planned for the future. You can learn more about the club and its programs at www.commonwealthclub.org. For those in attendance at the club this evening, we ask that you please turn off your phones and other electronic devices during the presentation. We'll be taking questions from both the audience here and those watching online. For those here, please write your questions on the question cards on your chairs and hand them to our colleagues collecting them. For those watching online, Please post your questions in the YouTube text chat window. And now it's my pleasure and privilege to ask you to join me in welcoming the, uh, to our Commonwealth Club the author Tom Kaufman, who will be in conversation with Robert Honda. Let me give a little background on Tom. Tom author of Inclusion, How Hawaii Protected Japanese-Americans from Mass Internment, Transformed Itself and Changed America, is a colleague and friend whom I have known and admired for several decades. Uh, Tom and I actually met in our salad days, and we've (laughs) both become seasoned adults. Hawaii's political history has been covered with dedication and distinction by Tom, and scholars, policymakers, and interested individuals across the Hawaiian chain of islands and far beyond are in his debt. Tom is the author of six books, including Nation Within, A History of the Annexation of Hawaii, The Island Edge of America, A Political History, and To Catch a Wave, a study of early statehood politics. His widely aired documentaries include First Battle, The Battle for Equality in Wartime Hawaii, Ariang, The Korean-American Journey, and Ninoy Aquino and the Rise of People Power. He's active in many community projects in Hawaii and has produced the theme films for the Japanese Cultural Center of Hawaii, the Judiciary History Center, and the famed Bishop Museum. We are delighted also that Robert Honda will be in conversation with Tom. Those of us here know Robert well He began his career at NBC Bay Area News more than three decades ago, although he still looks like a slip of a boy, and spent several years reporting at other Bay Area television stations before returning to NBC Bay Area News as a highly respected reporter in 2014. Robert is also the host of Asian Pacific America with Robert Honda, a weekly talk show covering Asian newsmakers, events, community accolades, and youth perspectives, which airs Sunday mornings at 5.30 a.m. on NBC Bay Area and encores at 6 p.m. on COZI-TV. Robert is an active member of many Bay Area organizations, including AAJA, Kimochi, Self-Help for the Elderly, UI Kai, Japanese American Community Senior Service, and Asian Americans for Community Involvement. Just last week, Robert was honored by the APA Heritage Foundation with its prestigious award for inspirational achievement. And now to Tom Kaufman for his opening remarks. I can only tell you this is a great story for you to know more about. And it's my great honor to introduce my friend and colleague. Here he comes, Tom talking.
1: We all embrace. Thank you, Mary. And thank you, all of you, for being here. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club for this what is for me an extraordinary uh, invitation. Um, I very much like to try to get the story of Hawaii, uh, what I think of as the inner story and the real story of Hawaii out in the world, and certainly this is a great venue for doing so. Um, To begin, I'd like to ask you to imagine yourself being on the island of Oahu on December 7th, 1941. Much of the Pacific fleet has been destroyed. Pearl Harbor is in flames. The Air Corps, which was to protect the fleet, has been destroyed and is sitting in wreckage on the runways. 24,000 people have been killed. 2,400 people have been killed. Many more are wounded. Bodies are backed up in the morgue and the hospitals overflow. The question on everyone's mind is whether the Japanese army will invade. And there is the long-standing question about the 37% of Hawaii's people who are of Japanese ancestry. That is in contrast to fewer than 2% in the West Coast states. Where do their loyalties lie? I didn't set out to write a book about inclusion as a concept but rather the title arose arose in the final edit as I was more fully as I more fully realized that the wartime practice of inclusion had so influenced many people and many events some of which spilled over into United States policies regarding internment race and military service Inclusivity held Hawaii together. It converted skeptics and outright race-haters. It went over powerful figures of history. The message of inclusion was that everyone mattered. The indispensable element was human connection. The making of acquaintances prior to the war mattered greatly to how these events played out. Foresight, intentionality, and the conscious cultivation of relationships served as a bulwark against panic and hysteria. Individuals who worked across ethnic lines became society's navigators. The paramount importance of inclusivity was settled for me when And finally, in an obscure niche of the University of Hawaii archives, I located the papers of a small multiracial group that organized a year before December 7th, a year before December 7th, aware that war was likely. You might call them a steering committee. Somewhat grandly, they referred to themselves as the Council for Interracial Unity. The... This is where I do this title. The ink splatter over there is how long I worked on this book. And uh, the three figures on the book cover were the most primary actors of this group, the Council for Interracial Unity. Charles Hemingway, Was originally a school teacher who became a corporate lawyer and a founding regent of the University of Hawaii. His only child, a son, died in a car accident. Mr. Hemingway became the university's father figure, over decades mentoring hundreds of Hawaii's multiracial student body. A Chinese American, Hong Wai Ching, was a campus leader in practically everything, class politics, clubs, drama, and sports. He was a great athlete. And thereafter, he became the best-known YMCA youth worker in a city <clears throat> that had one of the most active Y programs anywhere. Shigeo Yoshida was the foremost student, student debater in the territory of Hawaii, at a time when a d- debate might attract three or four hundred people. Thereafter, he distinguished himself, himself as a thinker, a progressive educator, and a leading advocate of fair treatment for the Japanese community. Together, their pre-war plan, in simplest form, was to minimize the oppression and potential evacuation of Hawaii's Japanese in the event of war, and to achieve this by maximizing everyone's inclusion in the war effort. Following the bombing, on on Mr. Hemingway's recommendation, Hung wai Ching, who was then 35, and Shigeo Yoshida, who then was 32 years old, became trusted day-by-day advisors of the martial law government, as well as advisors to the U.S. intelligence agencies, the War Department, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, and through her, the President of the United States. Lacking what we usually think of as influence, this Council for Interracial Unity exercised the power of acquaintance, fortified by a community that was fairly well-organized, and significantly integrated and also fortified by an unequivocal understanding through acquaintance, the Japanese-Americans were loyal to the United States. They systematically made converts of emissaries from the federal government. Firstly, the FBI's station chief, Robert L. Shivers, who had been sent to study the loyalty issue yet again, and to draw up a rest list in the event of war. Shivers listened carefully to Hemenue, Ching and Yoshida, and influential police captain John A. Burns, who would eventually lead a political revolution in Hawaii. The backstory about Agent Shivers was a college student from Maui, Sui Sonaga, who his wife took in as household help, which then was a common practice. Shivers grilled her at length. What did it mean to grow up Japanese-American? Childless, he and his wife soon were introducing Sue Sonaga as their adopted daughter. <coughs> and Shivers was to say, I could never stand to see that Sue." or people like her, would be interned. Additionally, General Dillis... Emmons, the martial law governor of Hawaii, was one of the long sequence of army officers on the ground in Hawaii who parted ways with Washington, D.C., subscribing to the idea that trust breeds trust. An extraordinary calm followed the bombing until the following week when the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, arrived on the scene. He announced without investigation or without evidence that Japan's success had resulted from sabotage committed by Hawaii's Japanese. His allegation was quickly reinforced by a presidentially appointed commission chaired by Supreme Court Justice Owen Roberts, and compounded by much of the national press, prominently including the Hearst and McClatchy newspapers. The charge of sabotage of a fifth column, an enemy within, spread rapidly throughout the country, even though investigated by the FBI and the Honolulu Police Department, debunked and disbelieved in Hawaii. During these crucial early weeks, the president was twice briefed on the patriotism of Japanese Americans and the absence of sabotage at Pearl Harbor. He remained silent. Here in San Francisco, a traveling congressional uh, committee chaired by Representative John Tolan, who was from Oakland, Took up the question of evacuation. Initially, both the US Justice Department and the Japanese American Citizens League hoped that through the Tolan Committee's hearings, they could set the record straight. To the contrary, toxic lies spread and truth from Hawaii was suppressed. First, the committee was prejudiced by misinformation just prior to the first hearings their questions became not whether there was sabotage but what could be done if sabotage hit the west coast the way it supposedly had hit hawaii during the hearings nominal supporters of the japanese community turned this included the governor of california and the attorney general earl warren Later, the venerable civil rights figure of the United States Supreme Court. The Tolan Committee began to openly discuss varying schemes for evacuation. The most extreme, which at at first blush was thought to be completely unthinkable, was to evacuate everyone of Japanese ancestry. In response to the cascading irrationality and wanting to protect the reputation of Japanese in Hawaii, the territory of Hawaii's delegate to Congress, a part-native Hawaiian man named Samuel Wilder King, campaigned to hold hearings in Hawaii. King told Tolan that lies about sabotage were spreading uncontrollably as a rationale for driving out Japanese-Americans and their alien parents. When Tolan declined, King submitted affidavits from 11 knowledgeable Hawaii sources, deconstructing the various sabotage stories. An Associated Press report actually ran on page one of the San Francisco Chronicle, saying it would be surprising to thousands of Americans in view of the uncounted rumors to learn that all reports to the contrary, no acts of sabotage, were committed on December 7th. In short, if people had listened to the testimony from Hawaii, the rationale for mass removal would have evaporated. Before the Tolan committee, Tolan again asked the War Department about sabotage in Hawaii. By this time, people were being herded into racetracks and shipped to remote desert encampments under armed guard. The War Department replied, there had been no sabotage. Tolan asked the Justice Department for its opinion. No, there has been no sabotage. And how about the Navy Department, which had set off America's mass hysteria in the first place? Very little, if any, was their answer. Irony of ironies, Congressman Toland later told Eleanor Roosevelt that there had been no sabotage, causing her to begin advocating for closing the internment camps. In early March 1942, a now largely forgotten figure, John J. McCloy, emerged as the conduit of two fundamentally conflicting streams of history, one a history of West Coast prejudice and one that he soon was to acquire. You must understand that John McCloy was made Undersecretary of War in President Roosevelt's War Cabinet, because of his knowledge of Germans, Germany's espionage and sabotage during World War I. He worked with the Western Defense Command at the Presidio, drafting for the president's approval Executive Order 9066, empowering army commanders to remove from their sectors any person or groups of people. When McCloy arrived in San Francisco... He was briefed by a high-ranking naval intelligence officer with background in Hawaii to the effect that Japanese-Americans overwhelmingly were ardent patriots and that their parents supported them. Nonetheless, McCloy secured a go-ahead from President Roosevelt for the forced evacuation. The vast, tragic removal proceeded... In the absence of a collective moral courage to stop it and to acknowledge that the United States had made a, a disastrous mistake. Before leaving San Francisco, McCloy spoke to a conference of Japanese American Citizen League representatives from throughout the West. Above all, he said, We want to give you protection. With a roundup in motion, he flew to Honolulu, where pressure on Hawaii's Japanese community had, re- had reached a horrific intensity. Its espionage, if, if, if as, indeed espionage, sabotage, and subversion had opened Japan's way to Pearl Harbor, it followed that people of Japanese ancestry and Hawaii were a far greater threat than their mainland counterparts. As if moving from night to day, McCloy was surrounded by knowledgeable individuals in Honolulu who vouched for the loyalty of Japanese-Americans and advocated against mass removal. Hung Wai Ching took McCloy on a tour of Schofield Barracks, where a brigade of young Japanese-Americans having been excluded from military service, were volunteering as laborers. On the recommendation of General Emmons, the martial law governor, McCloy became convinced to work behind the scenes in Washington, D.C., to develop Japanese-American fighting units. Publicly, he announced that mass evacuation from Hawaii was off the table. And strangely enough, the national press failed to ask why a mass removal from the West Coast, but none from Hawaii. Neither did the press clarify what a certain few individuals in Hawaii knew well, which was that the president and the Navy Secretary Knox continued to pressure Emmons for removing at least 100,000 people. General Emmons stalled and dissembled, risking dismissal. While McCloy maneuvered in Washington, D.C. for formation of what became in late spring 1942, pretty early in the war, the all-Hawaii Japanese-American 100th Army Battalion. Trust had indeed bred Trust. The call went out in early 1943 for a much larger unit, eventually to be famous as the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. The preliminary plan was for 1,500 recruits from Hawaii. Through the networks led by Hung wai Ching and Shigeo Yoshida, 10,000 volunteered. Three years later battle-scarred, the survivors returned from Europe and the crowds lined the dock at New York Harbor and then lined the streets, lined the street at Constitution Avenue in Washington, D.C. to welcome them home. President Truman's familiar words, I think, always bear repeating. You fought not only the enemy, but you fought prejudice, and you have won. Keep up that fight, and we will continue to win to make this great republic stand for just what the Constitution says it stands for the welfare of all the people, all the time. Thank you, and I want to invite Robert to join me in conversation.
2: Thank you, you, Tom. Tom and I were actually having a conversation in the green room prior to this, so this is sort of an extension of that conversation. And now everybody else can join in. Um, A lot of different things uh, come to mind. Uh, One of the things I told Tom is is that um, I know that it's a very detailed book. And uh, I found it very interesting. I know a lot of people haven't read it, but you bought it to read. So we do want to talk about it in sort of broad terms, as well as talking about what inspired him to do certain things, what some of the themes are, and what some of the questions are that arise from just knowing about the topic and then reading the book to find some of those answers. That was sort of the way I approached it. I have a background. I was telling Tom that my father's family, my grandparents, my father, and all my uncles, uh, there were four boys, uh, were all interned uh, at Heart Mountain during World War II. And so I've seen the evolution of the attitudes that come from families that were involved in internment. And uh, I remember when I was younger how the situation in Hawaii did seem so much different than what was happening on the West Coast. And it kind of, I approached the book, one of the main questions uh, that you touched on as well, which was, uh, why was it that the Japanese American community was able to, uh, in Hawaii, was able to escape what was happening on the West Coast? That was one of the first things that I thought of. And I think that you'll find uh, very interesting um, answers in the book because I think that the book is very much about people. It's very much about relationships, and it's very much about community. And it's kind of heartening to find out that those are sort of the answers. You know, I think that we've found, whether it's with the Japanese Americans or Muslims now and other groups, certainly blacks before, it's a lot easier to be prejudiced against people when you don't know them. And when you don't have any relationships with anybody, and you don't know anybody personally. And that was what I found very intriguing about your book: was that um, the conversion comes from interaction. Yeah. The conversion comes from enlightenment, from knowing somebody who's Japanese, mm-hmm. as opposed to thinking of Japanese as whatever the enemy or things like that. Yeah. Um, for you, um, you've written a number of books and done a number of documentaries, generally on this topic. Uh, You know, they're almost like an extension somewhat of theirs. Uh, What was it that sort of inspired you to follow the story? I know you were a reporter. Was Mm -hmm. it a story that just kept on developing or did you bring something or did something touch you that made you decide that this was something you wanted to really dedicate a lot of your journalistic abilities and insight to? Um,
1: The first section of my book uh, is titled From the Ground Up. And my... Work over 50 years has has been from the ground up and by that I mean uh, it has been from my acquaintance and my involvement with the community and projects probing uh, what happened how did we come to be uh, where might we be going from here and um, in in this particular instance, uh, I had covered the the policeman John A Burns who I mentioned briefly, mm-hmm. and uh, and had a great length interviewed Hung uh, Wai Ching, whose son King Let Ching is sitting right down here, and his companion Rowena Chow. Um, and uh, King Le bowled me over. <laughs> um, I remember the, we were, but here, here's context, and like all this stuff had context. We were doing this whole series of interviews uh, for developing the uh, historic storyline of the Japanese community, uh, the Japanese uh, um, culture center, right? Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. Hawaii. Right. And uh, we had had Dan Inouye and Patsy Mink and Sakai Takahashi and uh, Ted Tsukiyama, who did so much to preserve the history of World War II, uh, walked in uh, this enormously energetic man, Hung Wai Ching. And uh, he then was up, well up in his 80s. Um, and he, I. Th- we talked nonstop for uh, several hours and uh, burned up all this videotape and the video crew we were all just um, um, really bowled over I think is the word by his moral force and his humor and his stories and uh, uh, the the whole thing in a certain level fell in place in my in my mind at that time. Yeah. And uh, but it was, you know, elaboration, layer after layer after layer after layer uh, at the time. This is, this is interesting because how, how history gets retrieved. Hung Wai was uh, worried about being mistaken as an eccentric old man. And uh, and he would say, who's going to believe that I uh, was friends with Eleanor Roosevelt and she got me to sit down and talk to Franklin, you know, uh, because, you know, where's the documentation of that? Yeah. Well, we dug up, eventually, we dug up the documentation of all of that. Um, and so on, and so on, and so on. You were sort of able to
2: um, really sort of give him the credibility yeah. of yeah. his place in history. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me, too, is, is that when you were talking about how he kind of bowled you over with his personality, as well as all his talents and all the different things that he was obviously, uh, you know, very charismatic. Yeah, he was. That was actually the personality that helped start the change when some of these people who were coming to coordinate the internment and do yeah. that kind of thing, they met him as well yeah. as you know, Yoshida. And it was from meeting them that's and right. their personalities That's and right. their drive and maybe the fact that it surprised the men to see Japanese or Asians yeah. with those characteristics. And that is actually what sort of started the conversion, right?
1: Yeah. And, you know, if you think about it, there, there, is, a, there is a structural racism to an expectation that you're not going to experience that much with this person, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're, this person becomes a more holy human and you start connecting and connecting and you have this full-blown relationship and suddenly you're over into another world, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what happened. Over It happened over and over and over. Many of these, uh, these uh, you know, Caucasian people Came from uh, the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Shivers is from Tennessee. Uh, he had slaveholders in his uh, personal background. But if he had met
2: Sue, he might not have had the enlightenment of yeah. seeing Japanese in a different light, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 There's, uh, we were talking before about it's very tough to sometimes look back at historical events with a modern day perspective. Because sometimes things happen, and you think, um, why would they do that? Mm-hmm. you know, w- and why didn't they revolt or you know fight it back on that kind of thing?" And so I mm-hmm. felt like those three had a very interesting situation because they needed to keep the morale of the community up, yeah. they needed to keep the hope alive within the community that mm-hmm. this wasn 't going to turn into or degenerate into something tragic yeah. and yet to me, sometimes when you're watching it, you're thinking, well, you know, it's a bit patronizing to think that these Caucasian men are doing the Japanese community such a favor in letting them prove that they are worthy of being Americans by letting them join the army and join, and creating their own military fighting unit, the 100th Battalion, 442nd. Yeah. Um, to me, I always thought. How in the world was the United States going to win the war against Japan if they had the military intelligence service did not have the Japanese to help them translate and decode what was happening? They would have been totally in the dark. So to me, it was like, well, they're getting a chance to prove Mm -hmm. that they're good Americans. And yet it was very self-serving for them to have them feel as though they were helping themselves by helping the United States.
1: Yeah. And now it was very much in everyone's self-interest to find the resolution and the working together. And if you talk about, you know, like an underlying principle of society, it is that it is in everyone's interest to find common ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was in crisis, in, in, in really in a... Um, what today is hard for us to imagine. 9-11 is the closest we can come to imagining. Mm-hmm. Uh, common ground was uh, was essential. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like the whites
2: wanted a common enemy to be able to rally around. The <laughs> Japanese were kind of a convenient thing. Japanese Americans were kind of convenient with Japan. Yeah. Doing what they did. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, though, having grown up on the West Coast, And having been involved in Japanese American communities my whole life, San Francisco and San Jose, um, I'm not used to really thinking of the Japanese as being like sort of the dominant part of the society, like the Japanese Americans seem Mm -hmm. to be in Hawaii. What was that Japanese community, Japanese American community like prior to Pearl Harbor? What was it like? And how was it that these three or these two were able to keep morale high? within the community as they watched it all kind of coming apart, even if they weren't interned, they could see what was happening around them.
1: I think it was two tiered uh, um, generationally uh, uh, immigrant Nisei. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, in in the history of uh, migrations, that's that's always a big leap. And Mm -hmm. in this, I think it was a, a huge leap. Uh, And then it was also uh, somewhat bifurcated by plantation society versus, uh, I think I clearly established an idea that hasn't really been worked on very much in Hawaii, that urban uh, Hawaii, the growing, evolving urban Hawaii, was developing a much more mixed culture. -hmm. Much less hierarchical culture, much more mixed culture, a great deal more Um, uh, integration of day by day experience and uh, mutuality, rather than uh, you know supervisor, uh, you know field worker, supervisor, mill worker, and so on. Yeah. So there was a there was an um, the Japanese. Uh, community in Hawaii had a very strong core a very strong basis going in, and I think they were quite clearly on the rise mm-hmm. and they weren 't so well established that they couldn 't have been devastated and really wiped out forever by the by the war uh, but if things had gone badly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I wrote, I wrote one article um, a few years ago, and it was they just just barely had enough friends. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I, and I think that was the case, that the evolution of relationships, the evolution of <clears throat> leadership within the Japanese community, I think leadership was an essential element all around. But the most... Um, obscure, or the most obscured leadership was leadership within the Japanese community. Mm -hmm. And it was my finding of uh, the enormous impact that Shigeo Yoshida had had, which other than Hung Wai Ching helped me make sense of everything else. Mm -hmm. And that was, there had to have been someone at the table who was not just there or a voice, but someone who was a driving force, someone who was an intellectually engaged strategist. Yes. And that was he. He was the only Japanese-American advisor to the martial Law government, yes, direct advisor.
2: I remember, uh, actually, I also thought that Yoshida was extremely interesting as a character because he actually seemed to have a perspective beyond the war. You know, as opposed to like the community and everybody being obsessed, obviously, with what was happening right there. And yet Yoshida also seemed to have that perspective of what we do now is going to affect us in the future. So what we're doing now is very important for that, as opposed to not just dealing with the situation at hand.
1: His his uh, the thing that he wrote over and over and in the historical records, I began to see it echoing from other people, but he wrote, uh, how we get along during the war, we'll determine how we get along when the war is over, yes. which is an interesting kind of leveraging, um, number one, but um, uh, additionally, because he was so f- farsighted um, and because there was so much... Um, Intentionality and focus on the part of the Nisei soldiers and the people who remained at home developing these uh, scenarios is the question was very actively asked, where do we go when the war is over? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was asked very early on. It was asked in 1942 yeah. by soldiers in camp with the 100th Battalion and as a matter of fact uh, some of you know um, Young Oak Kim who was uh, the executive officer of the otherwise all Japanese 100th Battalion Young Oak Kim of uh, Los Angeles sat in with the Japanese and they brainstormed what do we want what do we want to do what do we want and they communicated this to the home front leaders and in the process of the war, as soon as, uh, under martial law, Japanese were allowed to congregate the Japanese uh, community and their friends, and they were lot, so it became multiracial, held four different conferences during the war, all aimed at the, dealing with the question of how we want to build a multi-ethnic society in the interest of all people, after the war, and it really became the basis for, you know, a new political culture in Hawaii and the basis of statehood and and the basis of, it, it is it is the, the framework of life in Hawaii today.
2: Yeah, I thought those conferences were fascinating. We also want to invite people in the audience to submit questions, and we also want to ask our online viewers uh, to post those questions, their questions in the chat room. Uh, We talked a lot about, uh, in general terms, about saying, well, mass internment did not happen in Hawaii like it did on the West Coast. But there was internment, right? I know that there was, I think I read several hundred people that actually were interned in Hawaii. I mean, they built built the camps for thousands. So obviously it was a a very small fraction. But uh, who were the people that actually were interned and why were they interned?
1: I think it's important that we we talk about that and we acknowledge... (laughs) the injustices that were done to them Mm -hmm. uh, and also who they were. Um, And it followed from uh, FBI investigation. OK, but the dynamic in 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 Hawaii was for the arrest lists that were made in both the West Coast and Hawaii. There were, as you know, and others probably know to some extent, there were there were two levels of incarceration. One was an initial FBI roundup, and that was then followed by this tortured process which resulted in driving people out of their homes and into um, um, internment camps. Um, the arrest lists in Hawaii were shrunk down to people with very on an institutional level, very close ties with Japan, uh, with the the Japanese consul, with Buddhist priests who were sent from the Buddhist church in Japan, uh, Buddhist churches in Japan, Buddhist sects in Japan. Um, And and, then a number of people in the Japanese language press Uh, Japanese language teachers who had been sent to uh, uh, teach in uh, church-aligned language schools and Shinto priests. And there were, and occasionally, uh, a business person who had a lot of business interests in Japan and did a lot of business back and forth. And no, there is no evidence that any one of these people was ever uh, in any way, did anything uh, uh, that was against the interests of the United States. Right. And there were hearings, which did not occur on the... Uh, uh, in, in the West Coast states, uh, except for German and Italian uh, people. okay. Um, um, but um, the hearings were uh, mostly uh, mock and pro forma and they did not meet the bar of anything that resembled Injustice or or genuine inquiry. Uh, So, yes, let's not prettify it. There were initial uh, several hundred arrests, and then it crept up to around 500 uh, in the first 10 days or so. And then through subsequent uh, suspicion directed mainly at Kibay, young people who had been uh, educated in Japan. It crept up further and uh, with, and people were shipped to mainland camps. They were shipped to uh, various army and uh, INS camps. And uh, then there was a contingent of people who were shipped who were uh, wives and children, basically. And uh, that total number came up to about 1,800, which as a fraction was uh, somewhat more or less and somewhat less than 2% of the total 160,000 population. Still a significant number. And, and, it, and it, it was a significant number, and I think it was a a... Pre- particularly devastating um, mistake you know I, I, uh, of the federal government it was all driven by the federal government yeah. because it um it damaged Japanese language use mm-hmm. which plagues uh, America to this day. Yeah, yeah. And it, uh, it, it, it uh, uh, damaged many Japanese cultural practices, which are rich practices, uh, which are slowly being retrieved through cultural centers. Yeah. But, um, you know, these things were, were became verboten.
2: Some of those characteristics you mentioned in terms of, like, why they were chosen yeah. seem to be, like, yeah. uh, extremely cultural and probably two Japanese for yeah. these people who were pro internment. Was that sort of why it was even done? Was that, you know, uh, to sort of mollify the pro internment people so that they could show that, well, they're not yeah. all yeah. getting away with this. We we picked out the ones that we thought are guilty.
1: was tremendous pressure coming from uh, the White House, from President Roosevelt uh, and from the Navy. And basically, the generals in the War Department were very skeptical of this population, although they weren't so actively rabid about it. Um, but uh, it was it was very much uh, driven by federal uh, antipathy and suspicion. Uh, Roosevelt had a uh, a strange quirk where he would tell people that uh, his delano francis Fra- franklin delano roosevelt right his delano ancestor was a ship captain involved in the china trade and in the polarity of asia between china and japan he always felt really comfortable with chinese and not comfortable with japanese
2: interesting yeah
1: like, what you know yeah. but that's sort of an internal but, process there though <laughs> But he he told that people to people repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Um, he said uh, he, he would say periodically, uh, you know, the Japanese are admirable people uh, that I've met many of the individuals. But I don't believe they can be assimilated into American society.
2: Yeah. yeah. And yet the people who met some of the ones that you've profiled in the book came away with a totally different attitude because they actually got to know them and stuff. And uh, one uh, uh, question from uh, someone in the audience here, which I thought was a a good one. Uh, Were there any surprises for you while you were doing your research? Mm. Obviously came in, you know, uh, as a journalist. uh, But uh, what surprised you the most about what you found out during your research?
1: (laughs) It was it was endless. (laughs) What's that? It, it it went on and on and on. I mean, um, but um, for starters, it see it began with uh, I was a young boy, political reporter, and I was uh, way in over my head. I was covering um, uh, Governor Johnny Burns and people like United States Senator Dan Inouye and Betsy Mink and so on, and uh, one day, because uh, I, I was busting to write a book, and uh, I asked for the interview with Burns, and um, I think he realized that my uh, zeal for writing way exceeded my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> and um, joined the journalist club. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's, he sat me down for six hours. And, and, and it was like, what drives where we are? Where are we? Mm-hmm. And he began. He takes me deeply into the war story immediately. And about four some hours of this conversation, and two pots of coffee later and, uh, in the governor's mansion, uh, was still about the war. Uh, and uh, I realized that uh, I, began to, I began to look for ways that the war was truly, deeply formative. And, and it was as an alternative to... There was a kind of turning away from the war in, this is like mid-1960s, um, and actually, the war was, at that point, it was only 20 years behind us, right? But I think there was a tremendous desire to just, like, turn the page. Mm-hmm. And we were a state now. And we were moving on, you know? Mm-hmm. And be- people's reference to the war was like, you know, oh, we had we had blackout. That was really tedious. And we had to sometimes carry gas masks. And that, that was a drag, you know? Yeah. It was this kind of... Um, it's a superficial sup- kind superficial, of Superficial. And, and then one night I'm out camping with, uh, we're, out, we're out of the campsite and uh, these two uh, friends of mine who happen to be of Japanese ancestry were sitting around talking and, and there were three, there were three people there. And it was like, um, oh yeah, um, Actually, I was interned, and actually, I was interned, and a th- the third person said, "Yeah." Hmm. And um, I can remember how you, the passageway from kind of vaguely knowing there was people. People were not talking about the internment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, kind of vaguely knowing there was this terrible event that basically happened someplace else to the friends of yours who had been locked up. And um, that's certainly a surprise. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, it was interesting watching my own families, my father and my uncles. My grandparents, interestingly enough, um, they did not really talk about it too much. They were uncomfortable talking about the experience. Uh, they definitely felt some shame for yeah. having done it, even yeah. though they didn't do anything. Uh, they actually started a new farm when they came out, and a lot of Japanese families took land that other people didn't want and yeah. turned them into thriving farms, so, yeah. so they used that talent. But there was a lot of uh, collateral damage and a lot of people that did not have, after the war, what they had before. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I remember that my uh, grandparents were... Totally prejudiced against whites for the rest of their life. You know, what I mean, they just—they were very prejudiced against white people for the rest yeah. of their life. My uncles were all joined the service, uh, and so they—and uh, they did have that feeling like that they had proven something. And I was saying to you earlier that uh, two of my uncles actually wanted to decline the reparations, you know, the compensation money that they wanted to give to people who were interned. They didn't want to take it. They said, well, we don't need it. You know, yeah. they, they, they were almost offended by the idea of it. Yeah. But they did like the apology. They liked the idea that there was some sort of an apology. But it was interesting that they didn't feel as though they wanted that money. Like they felt like, yeah. you know, we, we recovered. You know, We pulled ourselves up.
1: Yeah, I I think there was a... It was taken by a lot of people as an insult, Mm -hmm. the money aspect of it, um, because it's like, we'll give you $20,000, and uh, this is for, um, you know, possibly losing your home, lose your business, Mm -hmm. lose your dignity, and lose uh, four years of, of freedom... And like we were
2: saying, uh, like the, uh, the, the mood that was happening uh, in Hawaii at the time, a lot of the young people were anxious to prove that they were good Americans. It they wasn't were. really seen as something like now where they look, people look back at it and say, mm-hmm. why did they take that attitude? Mm-hmm. It was a different time, different circumstance, and a lot of young people did feel as though they were going to prove they were good Americans. And once they did, like I said, they don't really in- like the idea that someone wants to treat them that they did anything less than that. Um, I want uh, another question that um, I think if I if I
1: could just interject sure I think it was the entire success of their movement if you look at the sweep Mm -hmm. of pre-war wartime and then all the all the things they were able to do after the war in creating uh, Hawaii um, that was the, the the great fulfillment and so there was a there was a great sense of fulfillment, and the uh, apology was uh, was welcomed, and uh, the um, the reparation was um, the either either treated indefinitely or in some in c- cases. Uh, Presented.
2: Yeah. The apology was seemed like it was part of the victory. It was part of no. the success. Yeah. Or, there's, there's, the reparations seemed a little bit, I don't know, especially when they argued so much about how much yeah. to give them. You yeah. know, when, when that debate yeah. happens, people started to kind of change their attitude. Um, something that I'm sure kind of came to everybody's mind when you talked so much about how misinformation was used. Yeah. To motivate people to get things going, uh, you know, certainly something that we all know is an issue nowadays. Uh, any parallels between the past and today's current events, as someone is asking? <laughs> I know. And remember, we only have five minutes. How much time? To- <laughs> yeah. um, the, basi- the basic parallels. Yeah. I um,
1: it, it, it is the 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 chilling, gut turning. Phenomenon of the power of a gigantic lie, and it is—it is like the the Reichstag fire of American culture, and uh, quite—you know—clearly we've experienced that today, Um, but but. in my digging and digging and digging, um, it became so clear to me that the fundamental lie regarding sabotage was so important to, you know, it was kind of like burrowing in from a Hawaii viewpoint. I think it was very valuable to have a Hawaii viewpoint Mm -hmm. and seeing all the processes that had gone into investigating and debunking the allegation and but then seeing how it uh, developed into a firestorm in the continent. Uh-huh. And then in, uh, in, in our archives, I found that uh, story that I, I just stumbled across it toward the end of, of my work, of Sam King, trying to chase down the lie and all of his interaction with john tolan uh, and and his uh, inability uh, the inability not of Sam King but the inability of John Tolan to stop and to listen and to be honest and uh it was the The historical record of the of the Toland Commission, I think, should be studied in much greater detail, because it was sort of the last forum, the last step, wherein the tragedy, and the and the heinous as- aspect of of forced evacuation and incarceration, could have been stopped. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't
2: stopped. Yeah. They needed justification, some sort of rationalization to do it.
1: And it was was the lie. Yes.
2: Fortunately, they did not find any weapons of mass destruction in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say that um, uh, there are a lot of different themes and a lot of different issues that are raised that we cannot cover, even if we went on for another hour, because Tom's book is so detailed. Uh, But it is a story of stories within a story, and uh, I think that I would encourage everybody to read the book. Uh, I found it a fascinating read. Again, it is about people, it's about a community, and it's about events and how they're all influenced by relationships and uh, how people interact are the, is the key factor and I think that Tom chronicles it very well. Tom, thank you very much for doing this today. Thank
1: you so much. Thank you.
0: Our thanks to Tom and and to Robert, as well as to our audiences, both here at the club and watching the live stream. Let me remind those of you who are here this evening that Tom's book is available for purchase. For some of you who already have the book, he's here and he can sign your book. Right, Tom? And um, um, just to remind you also that the program you just have enjoyed and some of you have watched and others like it will soon be posted on the club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. And now with mahalo nui loa to Tom and Robert, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 100th and 19th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. Aloha and mahalo. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.